Well, greetings to you on this Pentecost Sunday, this day that with Christians around the globe, we remember the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, to the people of God. And uh, we'll come back to that near the end of the message. We're going to dive into Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5 this morning as an ongoing message in our series on living the new life in Christ, a study in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae long ago. This is on page 983 in the text in your pew Bible. If you'd like to open up and follow along with me, I would welcome you to do so. Um, The broader theme of this time is about, we're, we're going to look at God's mission in the world. And that's because Paul, as he shifts in the letter right now, he begins to reflect on his own calling as an apostle and his mission in light of God's work in Jesus and what he's doing here with the church. And even though none of us are capital A apostles anymore, we are all part of what we call the apostolic church, the church that is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus being the cornerstone. And we have not only been recipients of the apostolic ministry of God through the spirit, and therefore had our lives changed, but we are now part of the body that is the church, the people of God, that continues that apostolic ministry in the world to which we have been sent as God's people. So we have an ongoing part to play in this mission. And it's a mission that's not a trivial mission. This is actually the most defining thing in our lives as disciples of Jesus. We've been uh, conscripted by God to be a part of his mission. We have a part to play in this work. And It is the most central thing that we do, whether we are teachers or lawyers, firefighters, teenagers, elementary school students, parents or grandparents, and all the different hats that we wear, we wear them as those who have been sent by God to be on his mission. So as we look at this text, I hope that we'll be encouraged and reminded about our calling in mission. This isn't just for the Global Missions Department of Park Street Church, but this is for every single one of us who is united to Jesus by faith, we are called and sent on mission. We're going to ask three questions as we dive into the text. Who, why, and how? So who is proclaimed? Why is he proclaimed? And how is he proclaimed? So the first is who. And I'm really going to base our time here in verse 28, where Paul begins with these words in verse 28. He says, him we proclaim." It's a good summary of Christian mission, isn't it? Him we proclaim. That is our mission. It is to lift up the name of Jesus above every other name, to exalt Jesus above all, to proclaim him in word and deed in our lives and through our community and throughout the world. And we do this because as Peter says to the leaders in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is power in this Jesus. Power to transform the world, power to transform each of our lives. Power to change you and to change me. Ongoing power to continue to change us from where we find ourselves even this morning. And this mission to proclaim Jesus, this is the who, is actually in contrast to are often the other mission, the mission that most of us can take up in a life of sin in a world that's influenced by the powers of darkness, which is simply just a self-proclaiming mission. And this has been around from the beginning, really. We see the primeval narrative in Genesis 1 to 11 as we descend into greater and greater darkness under the influence of sin. What happens at the Tower of Babel is they come together. And why do they come together? You remember at least one of the reasons why? It is to make a name for themselves. 
It's to proclaim themselves, to exalt themselves. In the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso, there is a humorous depiction of this in the early part of season one with the player, the young and very talented footballer, Jamie Tart, on the fictional English football team, AFC Richmond. Every time Tart scores a goal in the early episodes, he celebrates by pointing at the back of his jersey, which has his name on it, and just going, me, 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 me. It's his chant. And even though that's kind of humorous, obviously it depicts something that is, exists within each of our own hearts. There's a fierce self-promoter inside every one of us. And that self-promotion has been given a new kind of platform with the age of the internet and social media. And the temptations are great, always, to proclaim ourselves. Against this, though, there are many counterexamples. Even in the culture today, I was... Uh, I saw the interview with Al Horford, the Celtics player, veteran player, after his incredible performance in game one in the finals on Thursday night on the court, courtside interview right after the game ends. And he begins the interview with these words. He said, it's, he said um, God put me in this position and I'm very grateful to him. Actually, I think Horford was channeling uh, somebody that we have in the scriptures who's Joseph. I love what happens with Joseph um, in Genesis 41, he's been in prison for a couple years. He's been forgotten. He was unjustly accused. He was thrown into prison. And Pharaoh has a dream and he wants the dream interpreted. And he can't find any of his wise men to interpret the dream. And then the cupbearer, who you might remember had been in prison with Pharaoh for some time. And Pharaoh had interpreted a dream for him. Reminds, uh, or uh, Joseph had interpreted a dream for him. He reminds Pharaoh of, oh, well, there was this, this Hebrew slave in prison that had the ability to interpret dreams. Why don't you get him? And so Pharaoh calls him up. And I think in his own words, you know, Pharaoh's like, Joseph, I've heard amazing things about you. You've got this incredible power to interpret dreams. And so I want to hear what you have to say. And in that moment where Joseph, having been overlooked for years, having probably felt like he was forgotten by God, like if ever there was a moment for self-promotion to improve your lot in life, this was the moment for him to go, yeah, me, me, me. And what does Joseph say? It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. One of the most amazing moments of humility in the entirety of the Bible. It's not in me. Pharaoh, I don't have anything. Everything that I have is a gift from him. And I'm here to proclaim him to you. Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Him we proclaim. This makes sense, doesn't it, that we would proclaim him? One of the things we're able to come to as we come into the faith is we can come to an honest assessment of who we really are and we actually can begin to see that we really are deeply flawed and broken. That we can't save anybody or rescue anybody. That even our best efforts are pretty um, tainted with all kinds of mixed motives, self-interest. Paul actually describes the, the people in Colossae that he's writing to as before they met Jesus, they were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's verse 24 of chapter 1 and verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
He's reminding them, look, you, you know who you are, who you were. I mean, he, he can do this with, with deep authenticity, Paul can, because he describes himself before meeting Christ as one who persecuted the church of God, as a blasphemer, he says, a persecutor, one who was insolent and in, in rebellious. And then he, he even describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 as the chief or the foremost of sinners. But he had met Jesus. It makes no sense when we've met Jesus to proclaim ourselves anymore because we know that there's nothing in us worth proclaiming. Because we know everything that we are is a gift from the living God and that the one that we've been rescued by, think about him for just a moment. Remember what Paul's just finished doing in the text we looked at last week is he's proclaimed Christ. He's proclaimed Christ as the cosmic king over all creation and the king over the new creation. He's proclaimed the, the, the brilliance and majesty of Jesus as we looked at together last week. This is the one that we proclaim. And not only was he transcendent and above all, but also Christ is the one who came near. He was the one in verse 20 of chapter 1 that in, in him God was reconciling all things to himself. Christ, the transcendent Lord over creation and the Lord over the new creation, has entered into the creation and gone to the cross, making peace, he says, by the blood of his cross. Christ entered in and took the cross on our behalf. And more than that, not only is he eminent in his redemptive work, coming and dwelling among us as one of us, but then Paul will go on to say, as he does here in verse 27, that the great mystery of the gospel that he proclaims is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. This cosmic king who's Lord over everything. The one through whom and for whom and in whom all things have been made. That very one is now in you? In me? That's the profound mystery of the gospel is that this Jesus would come and make his home in us. Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And here in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This cosmic king came near to rescue us at the cross. And then he came in, entered in to dwell in you and in me. That is astonishing. That is the power and profound nature of the gospel. So, of course, when we think about the message that we have to share, when we think about the who of Christian mission, it's all about him. It's all about proclaiming him and exalting him and adoring him and pointing to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If all we can do in our lives is get people to look more and more at Jesus and less and less at us, that's the, that's the calling on our lives as, as followers of him. He's changed everything. He's the one that we proclaim. I don't know if it was C.T. Studd or Hudson Taylor. I can't remember which of the two it was. But when they were asked as they were on tour... In England, their home country before, at different times, actually Stud was younger, he went to join Hudson Taylor in China. But one of them was asked, so aren't you concerned that when you go serve as a missionary in China that you might die? And his answer was, was great. He just said, I died a long time ago. For you have died, Paul will say later to the Colossians in chapter 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I mean, Christ is the animating power of disciples, his disciples. He is the one who dwells in us, and he is the one that we proclaim to the world. So that's the who. Let's get to the second question, which is why. Why do we proclaim him? Well, there are a lot of reasons that we proclaim him. 
not least of which is given in verses 25 through 27, that he is the great mystery that's been revealed by the Father. And the Father, when, when God wanted to be known, he sent Christ into the world and he wanted people to see him and know him through Jesus. And so Paul spends verses 25 through 27 talking about this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glorious, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ. And you see, he, we, we, we proclaim Christ because Christ is the revelation of God but the specific reason I thought I'd focus on is in verse 28 again our kind of rooted verse for this this passage where at the end of the verse he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ him we proclaim that is the that is the the the, the who of Christian mission well the why why do we proclaim Christ that we may present everyone mature in Christ Everyone, every person, the, the, the Greek here is every man, which man, of course, would include both men and women. And that's why we have the translations that we do. But that kind of sense of every single human being to be presented mature in Christ. This is the, the goal, the purpose. And of course, when we grow to maturity in Christ, who receives glory and honor and praise? It is God, of course. All of this is for the glory of God. That he would be magnified as the great and awesome God, the triune God that he is. To present everyone mature in Christ. When we come to Jesus, and so this actually means that the mission of the church is not just a mission for the people who have not yet come to know Christ. In fact, Paul's modeling here in the book of Colossians that he continues his ministry and his writing and his ongoing proclamation... And I should say that word proclaim in him we proclaim is a present tense verb, an ongoing process, Paul says, that's going on. He's writing this letter to, in order to proclaim Christ so that they, the church in Colossae, who already has come to know him, might come to greater maturity. When we come to Jesus initially, we come to him and we are reborn. That's the language of scripture, regeneration. But we're born as little babies. And physical birth is a metaphor for spiritual rebirth. We're born as newborn babes. And then we begin a journey and a process in our lives. We all know this. Where we grow from, from being a baby to being an adult. From immaturity to maturity. From infancy to adulthood. This is the, the, the pattern or the pathway that we are on. And Paul says the reason for proclaiming Christ is to present everyone mature in Christ. That we might grow to greater maturity. Which means that the goal of Christian mission is not just some, some kind of counting of the souls that we've saved. But it is actually the making of disciples. Which is a lifelong process of growing from immaturity to maturity. That's what the mission is for. And that mission of growing people to maturity brings glory and honor to our king. In a tremendous way. So let's remember that, that holistic nature of this. This is why we do this. It's to see one another grow to maturity. And the point I'd, I'd like to just focus on under this is. Because we, we often, we're so individualistic. Aren't we in the West? And we think, well, grow to maturity. Well, that's like, you know, Rocky out on the mountains. You know, doing the workouts and running up with the fanfare. I have a tiger playing in the background or whatever it might be. It's, it's about me doing the work. And actually what we see here in Paul's understanding and throughout the New Testament is that the context within which we as individuals grow to maturity in Christ is always the corporate body of the people of God. And we cannot talk meaningfully about maturity in Jesus if we don't talk 
realistically about what it is to be a part of a community of people that are living, that have been reconciled to one another in Christ and who are now living the reconciled life together under the king who was crucified as we embody that crucified life together. So let me just demonstrate this in, in the text. Look with me as Paul continues in chapter 2. He, he talks about his struggle for all of them. And then he says in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged. Being, he says, knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible or enticing or fine-sounding arguments. Do you see how there's a connection between being knit together in love and our hearts being encouraged through that that then leads us to reach all the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery? It is as we are maturing together, as our hearts are knit together in love, that we are given greater and greater understanding of the mystery that is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that we come to a deeper and full assurance about the reality of Christ. Maturity takes place individually in the context of the corporate body that is knit together in love. Paul says this quite eloquently in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says that we are speaking the truth in love. We grow up, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The vision of maturity in the New Testament, in Ephesians and in Colossians, is a vision of you and me being embedded and knit together in love. And isn't this true when we begin to see the people of God living out the life of Jesus together in words of forgiveness, in not taking revenge, in using the unique gifts that God has given to every one of us for the sake of building up the body, in giving up our time and our resources to meet the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ who are maybe suffering or in pain and showing them that love in tangible and practical ways. When we see the people of God living as God has called us to live, having hearts that are knit together in love, we are deepened in our assurance of the reality of Christ and our conviction in the faith. But the converse is also true, isn't it? It is. I've talked to so many people over the years in ministry who were at one time walking closely with Jesus, but who were then deeply wounded in their experience in the church. And for whom that then led them off the, off the path, onto a side road and into an alley, and it was very, very difficult for them to come back. When the church, when the church embodies the ways of the world, rather than the ways of the kingdom. And we are tempted to do that over and over again. That witness can have a converse effect to what Paul is describing here. It can diminish our assurance, can diminish our knowledge of the mystery that is Christ and shake us in deep and profound ways. So grow to maturity, that's why. And then let's, let's close with how. We proclaim Christ, that is the nature of Christian mission. We do so to bring everyone to maturity in Jesus through the body of Christ. But how? How do we proclaim him? 
And there are, there are a number of words here that I, I wanted to, to, to pick up and just look at for a moment. The first is in verse 28, again, just using this as our launching pad for this time. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, I bet you don't often think about the, you know, let's go join the mission of God and start warning everybody. I think that's fascinating that Paul chooses that word, warning everyone. What's a warning mean? It means that you're, you're getting off the path. Like you're playing with fire. You're, you're going into spaces and places that perhaps are very dangerous for you. You're getting isolated from the people of God, but somehow you're, you're, you're moving in a direction that actually isn't toward flourishing and maturity, but it's, it's rather toward bondage and growing and, and deepening immaturity. And, and so we warn one another. It's the warning, it's admonition, it's a warning, it's the warning of a mom or a dad with a teenager who's, who's going into some kind of behavior that they know that is going to be destructive and, and damaging to them. And they long to, to spare them from that kind of pain and heartache and sorrow. And so they, they warn in this deep kind of way of love, don't go down that path. It's the warning of the parents of the mother and the father in Proverbs 1 through 9, speaking to the young man, calling him not to go down the paths of, of the fools who are promising all kinds of life from counterfeit and stolen goods, but rather instead to run to Lady Wisdom. Warning everyone. This is a part of our, our vocation as the people of God. When's the last time you were warned? When's the last time you gave a warning? And then teaching everyone, this kind of unpacking and, and teaching about the depth of the life of Jesus. This is what Paul's already modeled for us in the text from last week as he taught them about the cosmic kingship and lordship of Jesus as ruler over all things. But our teaching is, is meant to unpack the, the beauty and the wonder of the knowledge and wisdom that is hidden in Christ, hidden in God's creation, so that we might grow to greater maturity in him. And he says he did, to do this with all wisdom. Well, let me just say this on wisdom. Wisdom is about practice. This isn't about just gaining head knowledge. The, the, the church is never just about getting smarter. The mission of the church is about growing in wisdom. And where do we find wisdom? Well, Paul says it in, in verse 3 of chapter 2. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We find wisdom in Christ. And what the church proclaims in our mission through the scriptures is a mission that is countercultural and that confounds the wisdom of the world. So Paul will write elsewhere, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And we do this because we have drawn near to Christ, because we know him personally and powerfully in our lives. It's the knowledge of the one who is wisdom that enables us then to admonish or to warn and to teach with all wisdom. But then notice the word at the beginning of our text in verse 24. Take a look back with me. Again, on how. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Him we proclaim through suffering. This mission, the mission of God's people, is not a mission that is from one degree of victory to another, one degree of glory to another in terms of a worldly sense. It is not a mission of comfort. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. A few months ago, our minister of missions, Julian, and I had the privilege of traveling overseas, and we spent some time in Egypt, and we went to the Presbyterian Seminary there, the longest uh, standing Protestant seminary in, in Cairo, and it's called Evangelical Theological Seminary, and we spent a few hours with 
two of the professors there, one an Egyptian and one an American. And the American had been there since 1999, teaching uh, systematic theology and just having a part in training the next generation of leaders in this country where to proclaim Christ is very costly and where there is substantial opposition to the work of the gospel. And it was a wonderful conversation. And he made this salient observation about the church in the West that struck a chord when he said it. He noted our idolization of comfort in the West and how this has impacted the church as we were talking about the, the crucified king that we serve. And then he said this. It wasn't just that, which is true, isn't it? And we know that's true. But he then noted that God doesn't seem to advance his kingdom in the midst of comfort. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul said. I was talking with a man after the early service on his way out from Romania. And he actually commented on this and said, you know, actually the, the witness of the gospel in Romania before communism fell is very different from the witness after. And he was actually saying that as a source of criticism on his, the church in his homeland. You remember Tertullian's famous remark in the second century, one of the early church fathers, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So how can I drive this down to your life and to mine? I would just say this, that as we take up the call to serve Jesus and take up the way of the cross in our lives, this will never be an easy call. And it certainly won't be a call to comfort. It is a call to love, and it is a call to be sacrificial in that love, not just for our friends and our nuclear family members, but for our fellow church members, for our neighbors in this city who may have nothing to do with Jesus and may actually despise the very things that we proclaim, and even for our enemies. And to live that life of love will always entail eschewing comfort and embracing some kind of suffering. And maybe it's just the suffering of not being able to go to bed when you want to, because somebody needs to talk. Maybe it's the kind of suffering of foregoing certain treats and pleasures in our lives so that we might meet the needs of someone else. But Paul shows us that the how of Christian proclamation of Jesus is that it includes this path of suffering. And that's obviously a consistent testimony throughout the New Testament. Two more words that he uses, and these are now in verse 29, if you look with me there. He says, for this I toil. This I toil. That implies an exertion and an effort. Physical, mental, spiritual exertion for the sake of this mission that Paul says that he's on. It is not convenient. It is not something we can maximize. It is a life of a labor of love that Paul properly describes here as toil and what I've called worthy toil. And then the very next word, did you see it, is struggling. That word comes up again in verse 1 of chapter 2, the very next verse. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Struggle puts the emphasis, whereas toil puts it on exertion and effort. Struggle puts the emphasis more on the fact that there is conflict and a fight. There's resistance going on. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places often manifesting themselves in human realities that we struggle against and that we work against. 
And this is, in fact, a kind of struggle. And the, the, the metaphor of warfare is used throughout the New Testament to describe the fact that there is resistance in this work of Christian mission to see Christ proclaimed and people grow to maturity. There will be a struggle in this. And Paul calls it here and he says, for this I toil, struggling. But it is Pentecost. This is the day that we celebrate the gift of the Spirit to the church. So look with me at the end of verse 29 as we come to a close. Paul says, struggling, but not on his own, right? Struggling, he then continues, with all his energy that he, work, that he powerfully works within me. The challenge of being on this mission is a challenge that we cannot meet in our own strength, resources, or efforts. It is a challenge that can only be met by the power of God himself. And the great thing that we celebrate on this Sunday every year is that God did fulfill his promise to pour his very life out upon his people in a whole new way. In the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. And that spirit was given, if we read our Bible carefully, particularly in Acts 1 and 2. We read from Acts 2 already today. But let me read you what Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That is, this power that comes upon you will enable you to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to all the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church to empower the church. Yes, to comfort as well. Many things we could talk about the work of the Spirit. But here in Acts, the Spirit is given to empower the church to bear witness faithfully to Jesus in a world where they will struggle and toil. And that is true to this day. The Spirit has been given to you and to me to empower us to do this mission that God has called us to of proclaiming Christ that everyone could come to maturity in him. I mentioned last week that I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Roberto Miranda, the former senior pastor of Congregation Lion of Judah in the South End, who passed away suddenly of a heart attack two weeks ago. And I've been reflecting more and more on his ministry and the legacy that he leaves behind. And at the end of that interview, I asked Roberto the question. I just said, look, if there's one thing that you could say to the church in Boston, you know, what would you like to say? And this was his response. It's not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Quoting Zechariah 4, 6. We are so tempted to depend upon our own might, depend upon our own power, to depend upon our intellect or our strategic acumen or our wealth, or our finances. We're so tempted to depend upon the way that the world works. And Roberto was saying to the whole church in this city, look, and he had a lot of those natural things. It's not by any of that stuff. It's not by might. It's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. You will fulfill some mission in your life. You will proclaim someone through your life. Paul gives us a glimpse here that we are called to proclaim Christ, the cosmic king, and to do so so that more and more and more people could grow to maturity in him, giving glory to God. 
And he says, this is hard work. It's challenging. We toil and we struggle, but we do so, as Paul says, with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. As you think about applying this in your life in the week ahead, I perhaps just want to encourage you to give thanks to God for the gift of his spirit who lives inside of you. Whether you feel that way today or not, whether he seems very present in your life or not, however much you may be struggling or grieving or just depressed or discouraged, if you are in Christ, then his energy is powerfully at work in you through the Holy Spirit. He will comfort you. He will guide you. He will finish the good work that he began in you. And this is true, more true than what you feel. And this is our hope as we take up this mission together, that we do so in his power and his strength, proclaiming him for his glory. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Breathe upon us again the breath of God into every corner of our hearts, our minds, our bodies. Lord Jesus, we long to proclaim you through our words and our deeds, through our life together. Father, may you receive all glory, honor, and praise as your Son is proclaimed and exalted through us by the power of your Spirit. How awesome it is to be your children. How wonderful it is to belong to you and your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.